You're listening to Feed, Play, Love, a podcast that's all about supporting parents as they bring up children. We've got experts and advice to help you through the more challenging bits of parenting. I'm Siobhan Hunt. There are a few things more distressing than being forcibly separated from your family. Some of us may have an inkling of how that feels given the travel restrictions imposed during the coronavirus pandemic. But imagine if you knew your family not only couldn't come home, but they were stuck in a refugee camp in a foreign country. This is Kamal Dabusi's experience. Kamal is a CEO of the Western Sydney Migrant Resource Centre and has released his book. It's called A Father's Plea. His daughter, Mariam, and three grandchildren are stranded, prevented from coming home by barriers even greater than a global pandemic. Hi, Kamal. How are you? Good morning. How are you? Good, thank you. Firstly, tell me about your daughter, Mariam. What's she like? Oh, Mariam was a uh, gregacious, fun-loving uh, young girl that's uh, totally in love with, obviously, as she was growing up. Um, I used to introduce her as Hurricane Mariam uh, as, she, <laughs> as she was growing. Yes. Uh, she swept up everyone around her. She uh, she was fun to be around. She attracted friends from all different age groups, and, and she, was, she was the spark of, of the room wherever she went. I enjoyed her company, and I often say to people, uh, particularly as she got older, she, she was my best friend. And your three grandchildren, how old are they now? Uh, they're now seven, five, and two. The younger one about to turn three very soon. Wow. Now, I know that you were able to see them at one point. What are your grandkids like? Well, uh, three grandkids and three very different personalities, of course. Um, the oldest one is, is uh, very smart, very inquisitive, very observant, a bit quieter. But uh, uh, much like her mother, she's very, you know, she manages to work things out really quickly and, and get to the heart of things. The middle one, the boy, is much more the engineer. He'll build and play. And, and we try uh, and, and give all the opportunities, but very much a boy in that space and, and does what he needs to do. The, the little one is a social butterfly. Uh, <laughs> she, she jumps from person to person. She loves to play and, and show off and get the attention from people. Very much in, in opposite to her older sister, yes. uh, who is quite happy not to be the centre of attention, but uh, but quite a bit sassy, I'm told. So. <laughs> <laughs> now, um, oh, correct me if I'm wrong, but your eldest grandchild was still a baby when Mariam went overseas. Um, we'll get into the details of what has happened with your family, but as a grandfather, what's that been like, having both your grandchildren being born um, far away from you, but also not being able to see them grow up? Um, it's a very difficult thing to talk about, mainly because it's, it's, it's a loss. Whilst the oldest one was born here and I, I managed to experience you know, her birth and be with her for a period of time, there was also a little bit of distance in those, in those days. And as, as much as I tried to be an involved grandfather, which is a very unusual thing to be, I could say, it was, it was tough. The situation with the second and third grandchildren, of course, I missed out. I missed out on their birth. I've missed out on their early years. I, I, I never got to hear their first words spoken. I never got to see them walking or crawling. I never got to, to help or babysit. Um, it's all this loss. I've never had this opportunity. Um, and for those of, of my of my vintage, um, you know, grandchildren are possibly the last great loves of your life. And, and I've not had that opportunity. I've really missed out that chance to enjoy and, and to be part. And, and I was, um, 
always looking to be an active, involved grandfather with the grandkids wherever they were, but um, I've not had that opportunity. Mm. Well, let's um, retrace the steps to why this situation is where it is now. How long has Marion been in Syria? How did she find herself there? Well, Marion married uh, 2013, if memory serves me correct. Terrible with dates. Uh, around 2015, Mariam's husband had never been overseas. Mariam had been fortunate enough to travel a reasonable amount with us, with me, and, and then her mother in, in different times. But her husband had never been overseas. So there was an opportunity came. They had been living in a granny flat behind her in-law's house. They decided to sell up. So they took the opportunity to go overseas. We decided to go overseas together, much to my great delight. I had the opportunity to reconnect with my son-in-law, with my daughter, with my granddaughter. And we went overseas together. And we went to Malaysia, Dubai. Um, I then had to return to Australia for work. They went on to Lebanon and then they were going to go to Greece afterwards. But um, as it turns out, they went to Turkey. And uh, they had spent a little bit of time in Turkey. You know, I wasn't so comfortable with what was going on there, and nor was Marion totally comfortable with what was going on there. But time goes on, and she, you know, some of those earlier fears got allayed. Unbeknownst to me, but I think they, they obviously knew, my son-in-law's sister had already gone into Syria, and she was already in the clutches of Islamic State. And there was a story that uh, concocted by uh, my son-in-law We've managed to get our sister out. We've got people smugglers. She's going to be listless. She's going to come to the border. We've got to go and pick her up from the border. And it's this great joyous occasion where the sister-in-law is being saved from this terrible structure. And they've all gone to the border. But instead of retrieving the sister under gunfire, the whole family were taken across the border, including my daughter and my granddaughter. And uh, the discrepancy in the stories is whether shots were fired or whether guns were pointed out. But they were all forced across women and men were separated and uh, they found themselves in the clutches of IS. So was it her husband that, it sounds like her husband was the one that orchestrated going across there to the bo- across the border. Had there been, did you have any sense that he was that way inclined, that that's what he wanted to do, that he wanted to go to Syria and he wanted to fight? I, I had no inclination. In fact, we'd had a, a great time in Dubai. Um, I, I felt like I'd reconnected. When he got to Turkey, I had asked to speak to him. I wasn't quite comfortable. I'd asked numerous times. I wanted to speak to Kay. Khaled was his name. I called him Kay. I wanted to speak to Kay. I wanted to speak to Kay. He'd never returned my calls. He'd never come to the phone. There was always an excuse. Um, And then things went silent for a while, which is obviously the time that they went over. The first inkling I had that something actually gone terribly wrong was when the Australian government knocked at my door. And they told me that they believed my daughter was in Syria and that, and that she had been coerced into going. And so that was the first real sense something had, had gone terribly wrong. I was in somewhat of a shock and denial at the time. It took me a, a while to work it out. And in speaking to them later, I said, well, if Murray's been coerced, what about Kay? What, what happened to Khaled? They wouldn't speak in Khaled in those same terms. They just spoke about Mariam being coerced across to the border. So that was when I, that's where my journey starts. Mariam spent some time where there was no communication. She couldn't get to to speak to me. And then suddenly communication started again. And she said, Dad, I think you've worked out what's happened. Be very careful what you say. Be very careful what you do. And and she'd speak to me again later. Mm -hmm. Um, So um, it, it it was 
just trying to piece things together. It's been five years just trying to piece bits and pieces together and work out what's going on. And it must be it must have been terrifying and confusing and, and a little bit unbelievable as well. It, it was, I was scared for her. I was terribly confused. I was terribly frustrated because obviously the government knew more than what they were telling me and they wouldn't tell me anymore. And I was trying to piece things together through third parties and what other people may know and what they didn't know. When they told me she'd crossed over into Syria, they didn't mention IS. They didn't mention where into Syria she'd gone. I didn't know whether she was part of the resistance to the Syrian government or whether she'd part of IS or whether she'd gone to Jabhat Nusra. There are some 80-odd groups that are operating in Syria. I had no idea where she was. And there's this great frustration. And the frustration turned somewhat to anger then to acceptance, I have to deal with what, what I have to deal with and, and what do I do to get her out. And even more frustrating was, and as I go through in the book and explain, interactions with the government were never about trying to get her out of Syria. It was always about trying to get information from me as to what was going on. And that was a terrible sense of betrayal when no one was trying to help you. Yeah. And they had, the only thing they ever told me was, if she gets to Kurdish-controlled area... That would be a pathway for her coming home. Well, she's been two and a half years now in a Kurdish camp or prison, whichever way you want to call it, and we're still here. They've not, nothing's happened since. There's so much in that, but just to go back to the fact that the government came to you and said she'd been coerced over to Syria, and yet uh, now, as you say, she's been there for two and a half years in a Kurdish control area and she's not able to come home. What is what is the reasoning behind that? Have, have they come back? Um, because I know that from the outside looking in, whenever it comes to women and children who are left in Syria after the, this terrible war, there's been a lot of fear-mongering in terms of the potential threat when they come home. Is that why they're saying she can't come back? No, that's, that's, not, that's not the reason. There is, there is fear-mongering, and we fought a terrible organisation and anything associated to that, people will have a fear about. But the Australian government is not bringing them back because of fear. They're saying, actually acknowledging that they will eventually return home, but it's not it's not safe to do so right now, which we don't accept for uh, at all. Um, uh, they're saying they won't put Australian lives at risk to repatriate the Australian women and children that are in the camps. Um, but how would Australian lives be at risk if they did that? Well, that's exactly our, our argument. I mean, the, the United States have offered to take them to the border. The Kurds have offered to take them to the border. NGOs have offered to take them to the border. Oh, so they're saying that the Australians working in the country are at danger if they try to move them. Yes. Australia, right. By Australians going into Kurdish-controlled Syria, mm. that there would be Australian lives put at risk by doing so. But hmm. uh, uh, you know, numerous Australians go there. Australian aid organisations go there. I have been there. Journalists have been there. And actual fact, at the moment, with the Kurdish-controlled areas, they're relatively safe. It's actually if the Kurds become destabilised, the area will become unsafe into the future. So mm. the longer we wait, the more chance it will actually become unsafe to do so. Okay. So the other thing that I don't quite understand about that is I thought that the whole reason we have a military is to protect Australian citizens, whether it's going and fighting another war, or there are a lot of diplomatic reasons why we do these things. But often the argument is put that we're protecting Australian lives. So... Well, I think that's a good question to ask of our, of our, <laughs> of our leadership. What I would say 
I've never met a soldier, Australian soldier, that's not prepared to protect women and children. Mm. Um, so I, I, I think that these are, this is not a, a military issue. You know, great respect for our people in uniform. This is a political decision. And all law enforcement agencies around the world are saying it's actually safer for us to bring these women and children home. In mm. fact, even the men should be brought home. But there's a, a, a political impasse and a political decision that has to be made. And it's the ideology at the moment that's stopping the decision making, not the actual practicalities of it. Right. Um, because, sorry, you, as you mentioned there, Mariam isn't the only Australian woman and your grandchildren aren't the only Australian children that are stranded in this camp. I know you've been working with those families. How are they coping with this kind of indefinite situation? We are all struggling. For many years, the Australian government told us not to reach out and speak to each other, and we all operate in isolation. I suppose there's been some some relief in meeting people like ourselves going through the same experience and the same story. But it's now been two and a half years they've been in the camp, and we are all struggling. We are all under pressure. We are all frayed at the nerves. We are all frustrated with the situation that we're in. Um, it's difficult to explain this illogical situation, how it's impacting on, on the families. And and we often remind the government that, you know, we have families that are willing to cooperate and work with the government. The longer you wait, the less goodwill you have. And you may lose an opportunity to work constructively with these families as well. So, um, so look, but the families are all struggling as, as I struggle. And we have our days where we don't function and we, then we sort of pull ourselves back together and, and we, we manage to, to focus on the future and we have supports around us that uh, that help us along that pathway as well. So if the government is not doing this for political reasons and they obviously think there's going to be some kind of backlash for them if they bring these families home, I know that um, Four Corners did a story with you and you, when followed you back to the camp, showed the, the conditions that uh, Mariam and other women were in and where many women were having babies and that, that sort of thing. What was the audience response, do you know, from that Four Corners? I remember watching that and thinking, they need to come home. There is an overwhelming support for the realisation they have to come home. And my daughter and grandchildren, as the majority of women and children that camp are Australians and only Australians, the only place they've got to call home is Australia. In the case of my grandchildren, seven or 17 or 27, they're going to return to Australia. When would you rather they return? The sooner the better. The general public, I think, are in support of their return. It's interesting, though, it's not a strong, boisterous call for their return. And I, I contrast that, say, with the David Hicks situation, where there was a very strong push to bring back David Hicks. It's an interesting scenario which I don't have an answer for. Mm. I do note that Australia has repatriated two men that were convicted ISIS fighters and they've been brought back without so much as a blip on the media radar, but somehow we've got resistance towards women returning and children returning. And I don't understand that uh, break of logic. I've made the point before and, I'll, and I'll, I'll make it again. The real heroes in this story are the mothers of these children that are that are there they have sacrificed of themselves, of their health, of their well-being to look after their children, to ensure that their children are safe, well looked after and not falling for the scourge that is in that, that area. They are protecting them from those negative influences that are around them. Mm. And they've done a marvellous job. If people could understand their stories, they'd be very willing and happy to accept them back into the community without any doubt. But 
it's difficult getting those stories across. I'm going to sound very cynical now, mm-hmm. but um, with your book, A Father's Plea, um, your daughter is wearing a niqab, is that mm-hmm. correct? And you can only see her eyes. Do you think that part of the reason why you will get so much support for someone like David Hicks, who ultimately presented probably Cleese Chaven from, from memory, mm-hmm. that there is some racism behind or cultural fear uh, ignorance, uh, some kind of feeling of un- being uncomfortable that they don't accept that these women are Australian or that there's something about the fact that they look different, that they're wearing something different. I mean, I don't want to say, I, I know that there is racism in our country. Um, I'm just, I guess, trying to point out the elephant in the room. Like, mm. that's the only difference. If your daughter was on the cover of this with blonde hair, blue eyes, and two children that were stuck in Syria. Well, I, I think uh, your readers will probably need to come to their own conclusions. Um, <laughs> it's very diplomatic. Uh, well, we contrast this with, say, Kyla Jarrett Moore, who was uh, the, the academic uh, stuck in Iran for two years, and the effort that we put into, you know, we prisoner swap deal with Thailand, and all the effort that went into retrieving and 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 getting her back to Australia, which we applaud, and the effort of trying to bring people from different locations around the world. What is the difference here? and uh, whether or not religion and, and prejudice plays a part in that picture, I, I don't have a, a clear answer for that. Mm. Um, Mariam, in this photo, wears the niqab. In the Four Corners program, she took off the niqab, she showed her face, and then she was hounded for days and weeks afterwards by the extremists in the camp that were trying to do her harm as a result. So um, Mariam doesn't usually wear the niqab. She's forced into it in, in, in this circumstance, and... She needs to make decisions to protect herself because even she she would put herself at risk, and the Australian government still didn't respond. So there are um, uh, there are elements here. I think some of it justified. I think it'd be too simplistic to put it solely one as as to one issue, but certainly um, that that's at play, and 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 the politics of the day are at play as well. Mm. I mean, the, I know that Save the Children have been involved with trying to get the kids back, and. It just seems astounding to me that we could leave children in that situation. What are, What is it like in the camps? What was it like when you went to visit? Firstly, I need to acknowledge Save the Children's fantastic effort and support. Um, and obviously, their you know their interest is the children's well-being, and children's well-being also needs to be with their mother. But they have been absolute rock solid in their support for us. And in fact, Matt Tinkler, deputy CEO of, of Save, Save the Children, has done the forward in the book. Um, the camps, it's hard to get a, a proper gauge of the camps. They are intense. It's 50 degree heat. Water and food is rationed out to them. While they were in whole camp, there were terrible sanitary facilities. So they were you know, using plastic bags for toilets and, and bottled waters to, to, to wash themselves with. I believe in a Raj camp, it's a slightly better situation, but certainly not. It's, it's not a resort by any means. It's very securitized. Every 20 tents, there is um, guards and barbed wire that are around them, but I believe the facilities are slightly better. There are no standing medical facilities. So as I speak to you at the moment, we have an 11-year-old that's had to be taken off camp into a hospital that's in dire circumstances and really between life and death at the moment. So the camp is is securitized. Um, guards treat them as prisoners. They are you know, at the mercy of, of the environment. There's health conditions. There are threats they face every, every day for a whole host of reasons. Um, but whilst they're in El Raj camp, the communication is very difficult. To get a proper picture of the circumstances there is very tough. 
How often do you get to speak with Mariam, given, Mariam, given those? Well, actually, I don't get to speak to her at all at the moment. Mariam gets to, there's a phone there between 3,000 people. They, uh, they've got to line up. They send a voice recording to me. I then have to send a voice recording back. So everything obviously is, is monitored. Not that it's, it's a particular concern with the Kurdish administration, but things are, are monitored. If I'm lucky, uh, Mariam's quite resourceful. She might manage to get a couple of days in a row where I get messages from her, or it might be once every couple of weeks if I'm lucky. So it's on off. She tends to get on the messages and then send me a whole slew of messages. And then I'm, I'm trying to make heads or tails as to what she's sending <laughs> to me at times. Um, and and then I need to be able to respond. And she's, she's often on my back for not responding enough with enough information. But um, uh, she, she does get information. She's always after photos of the family. She's after photos of her sister and, and what the environment's like. She wants to show her kids what, what the family looks like and, and, and remind them that there are people out there that love them and care for them. So um, mm. that's, the, you know, she's always asking for those things. Now that you've got the book, I know that this is something you've been working towards for such a long time. Um, what are you hoping to happen with the launch of this book? Well, look, primarily I, I've written the book because I, I want to put it on public record. I, mean, I want to, to, to put something out there that helps explain the situation better, explain my journey, what I've been through, the realities that I've, I've faced. And there's a lot more nuance and, and a lot more information and nuance in the book than what I explain in the interview. Um, I'm hopeful that people get to understand that these are human beings. They're not the other. They actually are Australians. They're, they're part of us. They're part of our, our society. I hope that people understand that this is their home and their eventual return and more acceptance within the, within the public. But I've put it there for people to be able to read and to, to see and to think. And I, I've got to thank the support of a firm press in supporting that journey to put that book out as well and all the people associated with the firm press in that process. I am hopeful that... Uh, there are people in government that have a compassionate soul. Um, I've got to believe that they're there. I, you know, I've got to believe that people will be able to make a decision that's both compassionate, also realising that this current situation is unsustainable. You know, when your key ally, the United States, your key ally on the ground, the Kurds, all want them to go home, that this situation will eventually have to resolve with them coming home. And someone realises the sooner we do this, the better. And I'm hopeful that common sense prevails and action is taken. Yeah. Well, I hope they do too. I hope they're home soon. Thank you so much for speaking with us, Kamal. Thank you. That's Kamal Debussy. He's the author of A Father's Plea with Mick Luby. And there will be links in the notes of this episode to where you can get a copy. Feed, Play, Love is a babyology podcast produced and presented by me, Siobhan Hunt. I'd love to hear from you. So if you'd like to get in touch... Email me at feedplaylove at theparentbrand.com.au. See you next time.